0: our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Emily Oyster, an economics professor at Brown University, a best-selling author of three books about pregnancy and parenting, and the publisher of the massively popular Substack newsletter, Parent Data, where she draws on her economic background and training to illuminate the evidence behind the key issues facing parents. I should say that I read one of her books before our first son was born, and my wife, Caitlin, has since read all three, We're also both subscribers to Emily's newsletter, which I can't recommend enough. In a world in which most parenting materials typically feel like some combination of dubious and judgy, Emily has distinguished herself as an empathetic and evidence-based voice. I'm grateful to speak with her about how she got into this beat and what the experience has been like, how certain ideas and norms of parenting have taken shape and their consequences, and her thinking and writing about the intergenerational trade-offs inherent in COVID-19 policy. Emily. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here.
1: Let's start, if it's okay, with your experience crossing the bridge from academic scholarship into popular commentary. Your academic pedigree is hugely impressive, and you've made major research contributions to development economics and public health. But in 2010, you had your daughter, and nearly a decade ago, you wrote a best-selling book on parenting, ever since you've been a go-to voice in the popular discourse. Can you talk a bit about the decision to cross over into this more popular work? Was it one that you made knowingly or was it an accident of sorts?
2: I I think the answer to that is, is both. Um, So, uh, so when I was pregnant with my daughter in, in, who was born in 2011, I wrote Expecting Better, which is my book about pregnancy, really as a kind of labor of love is probably the wrong word, almost a labor of frustration that I was pregnant. I was having a set of experiences that. I thought were not the experiences I had hoped to have. Um, and I was doing a lot of work that was taking my you know, professional side, my data analysis and decision-making pieces and sort of turning those to my pregnancy. And Expecting Better really came out of that. And it, I had written and I had written like a chapter and an introduction and I sent it to an agent without really having kind of fully work down the game tree of like, once you send the book, then they do things with it and then yada, yada, yada. So that was really exciting and it was fun and and I loved doing it, but it, it did feel very accidental in a sense. Um, you know, fast forward like six years or so um, to a, a time when I had a different job and a second kid. Um, and I then, Chose to write crib sheet, which is a book about you know little kid parenting, which is sort of a follow up and looks at, takes these same ideas of data and data analysis, but looks at breastfeeding and potty training and circumcision and all the kind of early kid stuff, and and that was much more conscious. So I think I realized, um, you know, writing one book and staying an academic, then you're just kind of like a weirdo who one time wrote a book about pregnancy. Once you write two books, then you're like a person who writes books about pregnancy and parenting. And that was a much more conscious choice to say, okay, I'm going to sort of shift, shift a little bit in that direction. And then certainly after that and then into into the current moment, that's been more intentional.
1: So many parents around the world have come to trust and rely on your advice and analysis. The Hub's editor-in-chief, Stuart Thompson, incidentally, asked me to thank you for making being a parent something like 20% less stressful. What's that been like for you? What's the experience been like to leverage your research skills and training for such a large audience?
2: I would say it's it's uh, enormously rewarding and very humbling and sometimes scary. So, you know, I feel like part of what draws me to this and keeps me here relative to to some of my academic pursuits is the feeling that I can help people, uh, and that people's lives are 20% more relaxed, um, than, than they would be otherwise. And that, that is a really, that's really amazing. And when people tell me that, like, that's just feels like such a privilege. I also sometimes think, oh my goodness, like people are listening to me. Um, and you know, that makes me want to, want to be careful with what I do which which I am but there is a moment of like well I hope you're not listening too much um and that's uh that can be a little a little scary occasionally
1: besides that what are the other downsides do you ever wish you were just working away on academic scholarship far away from the public square
2: I think the major downside of being out in public is that you're out in public and people disagree with you um and you know people disagree with me on my academic work Also, that's part of science, but they disagree in a much slower and quieter way in the form of, you know, mean referee reports and and so on. Uh, You know, being out in public, you know, particularly, and we'll talk about some of the stuff I did on COVID, you know, particularly in that moment. But even if when I'm just writing about parenting, people have a lot of opinions. And when you are out in public, there are ways for them to express those opinions. And, you know, that's that's just part of the that's sort of part of the job it's but it's not like the best part of it
1: in your book crib sheet you say that the best advice you ever got about being a parent was from your first pediatrician who essentially told you to try not to think about it what was that insight for you and how has it informed your parenting and your own work as a source of advice and information
2: so the the context for that comment was i had gone down a kind of deep rabbit hole about bees And it's sort of a fear that my then, you know, 18 month old daughter would sometime in some isolated location we were going to be stung by a bee. And since that had never happened before, like perhaps she was allergic to bees. There's no reason to think she's allergic to bees, not a common allergy. And, you know, I'd sort of gone down this road and I got to the bottom of this long monologue about like, should we go on vacation, basically? And my doctor was just, she just said, you know, yeah, I would just try not to think about that. And I think it was such a moment of recognition of like, you're right. Like, I, like, what am I doing? You know, I'm in this, I've sort of gotten myself into this, like, I don't know, anxiety spiral, um, which I think is so common in parenting and just having someone to kind of pull you out and be like, you know what, worry about something else. Um, And I think about that a lot when I, when I talk to, to parents, because I think some combination of who I'm talking to, and also the moments that I'm talking to them, which are often when people have very small kids, that often when it's their first kid, there's just so many of these kind of small anxieties that can really build up and that can affect your mental health and how much you're enjoying doing parenting. And so often people need to hear like, you know what, that's not one of the things you should have on your worry plate, like take it off and make room for the, you know, the bigger things that you really need, do need to worry about.
1: I was just recommending your books and newsletter to an expecting parent. And my elevator summary was that you commonly make the case that much of the popular assumptions and even social pressures about raising children, including sleeping, breastfeeding, childcare, et cetera, is often overstated or without substantiation. How do these norms and practices take shape? What's the process from a half truth to a societal expectation?
2: That is a fascinating question i think the dynamics of how these things happen are so variable and you know so one thing that happens is sometimes we'll get like a little bit of evidence that might suggest something was good and then people start doing it and and actually this is a topic i work on in my In my like academic work is once we start telling people to do something, the types of people who start doing that behavior tend to be kind of people who are also doing a bunch of other behaviors that are sort of positive. And so we can kind of get sort of reinforcing biases in our our data. It's a little subtle, but it really shows up a lot in, in health data. I think the same thing happens here, that we kind of get a little bit of evidence and then some people start doing it. And then it looks like, wow, like a lot of you know, people who are. Kind of doing other good things are also doing this, and then it becomes a thing that people that people do, and and that sort of influence the influences the norms, even though it's come from some sort of very small small thing in the background. The other thing that's often going on, especially in this current moment, is that we've gotten into a, I think a pretty unhealthy situation in which denying your in which like suffering is what it means to be a good parent. And so some of these norms, I think, have the feature that like, almost like I'm showing you how good a parent I am, because it sucks. And, and I think that's not super healthy. um, And that that is a kind of reinforcing thing that I try to push back against that, you know, just because something is unpleasant for you, doesn't actually necessarily mean that it is good for your for your children.
1: We're speaking on March 1st. By the time this episode is released, we'll have already released an episode with American born, Canadian based demographer and sociologist, Lyman Stone on delayed family formation and fertility rates. His key argument is that women in Canada, the U.S. and elsewhere are having fewer children than they say they even want. How much do you think the intensity of so much of the popular thinking about pregnancy and parenthood, which I should say as a parent of a two year old and a 10 week old is is downright stressful, is a factor? And in that sense, is a potential outcome of your work to give people the information and in turn confidence that they need to actually have the kids that they want?
2: We certainly see hints of these kind of relationships in a bunch of different places. So I so I like um, I like the work that you're that you're citing. We also see some of this, you know, people have been talking about sort of demographic transitions in a number of Asian countries. So, you know, surveys of women in Japan who say effectively, like, I'm not interested in having kids because it's too much work. Because basically the the societal expectations for what it would mean to be a parent are so great that I would be unable to do any of the things that I currently enjoy. And that's kind of too much. And I think that's, that's really, I mean, actually as a parent, I think it's really quite sad actually, because I mean, it is very problematic to say that the only way we could set up a society is one in which being a parent is so onerous; requires so much of yourself that you literally don't want to do it, even though you would like to have children. So, I mean, I, I don't. I think it's always hard to to know what these demographic changes are are reflecting, but it is certainly the case relative to some time in the past that having children has become more of a competitive sport, uh, and I think that that attitude makes it harder and less fun. So I guess maybe if I could make it a little more fun, maybe that's uh that's good for fertility.
1: <laughs> I want to come to your thinking and writing on the COVID-19 experience, but before I get there I have to ask you some questions that I've long wanted to if that's okay. Yeah. In June 2022, you wrote about Coco Melon, the popular kids show. You assured parents that claims that Coco Melon is contributing to hyperactivity is without evidence. Let me ask a different question. Do you think that shows like Coco Melon have any educational upside or is it empty intellectual calories?
2: I don't what do you mean upside? Look, yeah, the upside of Coco Melon is your kid likes it and then you can do something else. I mean, when I talk about screens, I think so much of the discourse focuses on this idea that screens are like either good or bad or it's only good to have screens if they're like teaching your kid something. Yeah, I don't know how much television you watched as a kid, but I assure you that like most of the things I watched, were not teaching me anything. But that's okay because sometimes people like to relax, and I think it's completely like cr- crazy, honestly, to think that we should only let kids watch *Cocomelon* if they're learning something from it. I like, much better to say, you know, does a half an hour of *Cocomelon* fit into your day in a way that like that gives you a little bit of a break, and your kids enjoy it, so you can cook dinner quietly, and then you can all have a nice meal together. That's why cocoa melon's good. That's what it's good. Does it not because it makes your kid a cocoa genius or whatever people think?
1: In terms of a child's cognitive development, how should we think about the different inputs and factors? For instance, do we have a sense of the relative role of not just nature versus nurture, but say the role of parents versus full-time childcare, like say a nanny versus friends at the park versus other factors?
2: You know, most of the things that we look at uh, if like, what kind of childcare arrangement do you have? There's really not a lot of evidence that that's gonna contribute in any sort of particularly large, meaningful way to child's cognitive uh, development. It is certainly true that some things must matter because there is variation and there's systematic variation, but pointing to sort of particular behaviors as opposed to kind of being a person who thinks a lot about those things, being like inherently kind of somehow enough um, I think that's that's the the tension in the data. The one behavior that really does kind of come up in the data, I think, in a more causally compelling way is reading to kids. So it turns out reading to kids, we actually have a lot of evidence that that's good for language development and for their later literacy. Um, but beyond that, you know, should you send your kid to the park for this time or do you need to put them in the baby music class or is a nanny better than daycare is better than stay at home parent? None of that stuff really shows up in, in good data.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: I mentioned that we have two young boys, and so I was really interested in your December 2021 post on sibling rivalry. What is it to say that the idea of equal is less? And how can we create an environment where our sons have a positive sum view among one another and their individual identities?
2: The blings are hard. Um, I think that the uh, you know it's it's very we don't know that much actually, about how we can develop good sibling relationships. We know that you know, generating conflict between kids is not good. So setting up like explicit competitions or even saying things like, well, why don't you behave like your brother? He's so great?" You know that kind of dynamic. I think is is has been sort of shown to to persist and be be negative. Sometimes people will frame the question like, "How can I make my kids be friends with each other?" And the answer is like, "That's pretty hard to do," um, because it's hard to make people be friends with each other. And maybe your kids will ultimately like each other, and maybe they they won't. But um, but some of this kind of not generating a comparison set is is a sort of key part of siblingness. The other thing is, I mean, your kids are not old enough for this. But what you will find as they age, which I think is astonishing for most parents, is your children can one moment be each other's like ride or die. Like there are moments where my kids will be like, if some third person does something to wrong one of them, the other one is like a banshee, you know? And then five minutes later, they're telling you, I hate her so much. She's the worst. And you're like, how did that happen? I mean, a sibling relationship is such a, A complicated and interesting
1: one. Emily, Canadian society is oftentimes viewed as divided across urban and rural lines. And there are various factors behind that the concentration of our population in a relatively small number of places, the process of self selection or self sorting that no doubt you're familiar with. Are you familiar with any research or evidence on the childhood experience of growing up in a city versus a, a rural or peripheral community? and the development of children?
2: I don't think we have very much that would sort of say that there was an important causal link per se of the sort of rural versus urban, uh, urbanness. That's just a, like a hard thing to isolate in the data. One of the the things that does tend to differ, not always, but sort of tend to differ across those settings is the degree of independence that kids have, sort of physical independence and that's something where I think increasingly, I was just reading some sort of summary data about this this, this morning, something where I think increasingly people have sort of talked about, like, the changes in the amount of independence over time being potentially problematic for kids and thinking about, you know, how do you foster the ability for kids to, again, physically sort of be in sort of outside on their own in situations that could be, you know, perceived as slightly risky, that's much going to be much more common in rural areas than it is in, in a city. So the idea of your kids out and ranging around in the field, um, you know, climbing trees. That doesn't happen as much if you live, you know, in the middle of of Toronto. And so that's the that's one of the 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 differences that I think is probably something that's worth exploring for people sort of thinking about if independence for kids, developing independence is important. How do we scaffold that better in places where actually like physical independence feels more challenging?
1: You're probably familiar with the fact that hockey is a popular sport and pastime in Canada. There are growing concerns, though. That it's becoming cross cost prohibited to the extent that it's creating a, an inequity between those who are able to put their kids in recreational activities like hockey and those that can't. What does the evidence or data tell us about the benefits of participating in, in those types of recreational activities?
2: So I, it's interesting. I thought you were going to ask something different, which is about concussions, <laughs> but we could talk about the, we could talk about this. Um, you know, when we look at evidence on extracurriculars, I think a lot of parents think about extracurriculars as a, as a kind of an, another achievement thing. So like, how do I get my kid to be the best person in hockey so they can go to play junior hockey or whatever is the, like the, next, the next phase? Um, when we look at the evidence on what are the benefits of extracurricular activities for kids, they actually tend to be in terms of increasing a sense of belonging, increasing a sense of kind of, you know, something that you're good at. So it's an opportunity for kids, you know, school isn't going that great this week. Like there's this other thing I'm good at. It's soccer, it's hockey, it's, you know, the violin, it's, you know, acting, it's, it's something else that's kind of outside of your normal, of your kind of the the place that you typically are and that that can be really scaffolding, really, really good for kids, uh, for kids' mental health, for, for, you know, anxiety, for, for feeling like they are, um, you know, they are, they are valued. In the data, you can deliver that without like being on the junior Olympic team. Um, actually, most of these experiments are in quite small doses. And so in that sense, I think that most of the benefits of extracurriculars can be delivered by not, something that is not super intense, but the focus should be on something that, that your kid likes. So if your kid is bad at hockey and they hate it, then putting them in a lot of hockey is actually not going to improve their mental health. You probably want to think about like, what is the sport that they like? or the something else they like.
1: I've heard you say, and certainly seen you write in various places, and you alluded to it earlier in the conversation, that eating as a family is something that is important to you. Does that reflect a personal preference, or is it a practice that's rooted in the evidence and data?
2: So it reflects a personal preference. Um, you know, If you look at data, there's a tremendous amount of correlational data that outcomes for kids tend to be better in families that eat um, eat meals together, eat dinner together. The issue is that that those those differences are also reflecting tremendously many other differences across family, even more than in some of the other settings that I look at. You know, the choice, the kind of the ability to all sit down at the same time to eat dinner at the table, like that's a lot of planning, and that takes a lot of resources and a lot of sort of specific things about about the family. So I think the correlation there is is very strong. That the causal argument is pretty limited. Um, But for us, I mean, I think I I tell people like you want to think about like what's going to work for you. And for us, like that is a time that we can kind of get together and that we do have an opportunity to sit down with the kids and we both work full time and they're at school full time. That is kind of our moment of connection. And I think it doesn't dinner doesn't have to be everybody's moment of connection, but it is for us a very key part of our day and something we sort of organize our time around because we like it. Um, And it is an example of something where I like to be able to say, like I eat dinner with my kids every night because I like it not every day I don't have every day like it sometimes they're jerks but like most of the time I like it as opposed to like I do this because otherwise my kids going to like be unsuccessful and that's not why
1: I'll pause here and just thank you for permitting me to subject you to something of a of a lightning round of questions that I've been accumulating over the past couple of years as a parent let's shift the remaining moments of our conversation to the subject of COVID-19 and pandemic related policies as many listeners will know you were a leading voice rooted in the evidence about the policy choices taken during the pandemic, including school closures. You've talked a lot about the experience elsewhere, including the inherent risks of being caught up in politics. I won't ask about that. But what I'm interested in, Emily, is uh, how we think about intergenerational trade-offs in our societies, and and in particular, the potential long-run social conflict as we sort of grapple with zero-sum choices about public spending and and other policy issues, what does the experience of the pandemic tell you and and us about the role of intergenerational trade-offs in our political economy?
2: So kind of late in the pandemic, I wrote something which never got published because it was too angry, which I had titled, We Put Kids Last. And I think when I look back on many aspects of the pandemic, that feels right to me. I mean, I think we made many choices throughout sort of several years that deprioritized kids relative to others. And again, I think you're right to sort of frame it as a trade-off because, you know, their kids were a group with very, very low mortality or health risk. And where the the disruptions that we had to schools, to their regular lives, to sort of their ability to sort of socialize and do things, they were very great. And we were trading those off against some health benefits for particularly the elderly. And I think that that trade-off is is a complicated one. In many Western societies, I think in the U.S. and, and Canada as well, we made that trade-off in favor of ol- older people rather than than kids. Um, and you know, for my taste, I think we should have had that conversation more. I think that we ended up framing the conversation very much as like as if this is not costly for children. And I think it would have been a healthier conversation if we had acknowledged the costs, if we had said, you know, for kids, if it was only a society of people under the age of 18 we would be much more open. We would have treated things very differently. We are trading that off against risk to older people. And here's how we're thinking of the trade-off. Instead, we ended up framing, I think, much more as if kind of that wasn't a trade-off at all and that it was completely fine for for kids for this to happen or framing the trade-off as, well, this is also very risky for children. And I think that was just simply not true in the data. And I made this point a number of different times. And that got that's a fair amount of There was some blowback from that, but I think that the reality is like that's what's that's what showed up in the uh, in in the data, and and we didn't end up talking about it this way. And so, you know, I think there was a there was a complicated prioritization that was just not put out in public sufficiently.
1: And I was just saying, parentheses, those trade offs were also also often obscured by calls for solidarity, which you know were compelling at some level, but caused policymakers and the society more broadly not to grapple with some of the trade offs that you you were so kind of courageously brought to bear to the policy conversation
2: and i think it's just can so i say one other thing which is i think that this this conversation kind of evolved in an odd direction over time i think there was a period in which these sort of calls for solidarity and thinking about kind of more lockdowns so we knew more sort of early in in kind of i guess now 3 years ago now sort of like this period of sort of 2020 that Made a lot of sense to me, I think, or it certainly I think it it had a it was much easier to understand that trade-off when we got into sort of a later period, particularly post vaccines in which we were still saying, you know, well, let's you know put these restrictions on on kids because like, what about the people who haven't been vaccinated? even though they could be. I think that's where we got into a little bit of a space where it really felt like, you know, now we're kind of deprioritizing this group in favor of a set of people who have chosen themselves not to to protect themselves and I thought that was that was a sort of particularly frustrating part of the dynamic.
1: Based on your research and analysis, are there interventions that we can pursue that can overcome the learning loss that was experienced during the pandemic or do we need to kind of confront the reality that that won't be something that can be fully mitigated going forward?
2: Both. Um, I think that there are there are. This is both an opportunity for us to invest in learning about what works for recovery, and there are some things that we know, like high dose tutoring tends to be effective if it's sort of appropriately um, appropriately used. Um, we are doing some work on pandemic recovery, you know, across states in in the U.S., and so we can see some things like some states are really good not entirely sure what they're doing differently but like the and maybe the policy be like South Carolina or be like Tennessee is not like super specific policy but I think there are some things we can we can learn and some ways in which we can enhance uh sort of test score catch up learning loss catch up for for kids on the other hand you know there are kids who dropped out of high school and didn't go back there are kids who are going to stay behind um those are unfortunately going to be disproportionately lower income students and students of color. And that's you know, part of the like long term legacy of the pandemic. I think it's going to be an increase in inequality among kids who were people who were kids during during this period. And that's something which I, I just do not think it's likely that we will make up fully ever.
1: Let me ask a, a penultimate question about your Atlantic essay from last Halloween on the case for a, quote, pandemic amnesty for those who had got calls wrong during the period of extraordinary Uncertainty in the pandemic, it's generated a lot of positive and negative reaction. And I should say,
2: did you see the pos- Any positive reaction? You should send me that because I don't think I got that. Okay.
1: Well, let me give you some. I'm naturally inclined to agree with you, but to you know to represent the other side, if there are no consequences for those in authority who made the wrong calls, uh, and I should I should say, Emily, here in Ontario, for instance, the government actually lock down children's playgrounds for a while, isn't there a risk that it contributes to the kind of anti-elite populism that we've seen in, in the past several years?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, the, you know, this, of the many pieces of feedback that came back, I think the one that I found most uh, that sort of made me think the most um, was was the feedback that, you know, uh, that, I like, I want an apology. Um, and I think that that's a very real a much understand that um there are things which i would also like an an apology for um and i some of the point of that of that piece was to to wake people up a little bit to like you're not getting so we could want an apology you could want to hear but i think in a lot of settings that's not likely and we need to think about moving forward and particularly on things like learning loss, like I don't want to get stuck in a discussion about whose fault this was. You know, the fact is test scores are down, you know, 15 percentage points. It, whose fault this fault, that fault? Like it, at this point, that sunk. That already happened. And when we are getting caught up in those discussions, we aren't moving forward. So and it's a little different than saying, I don't think that we should have, a, that I don't wish people would apologize or that some of these things maybe somebody could have known at the time, as opposed to saying there was a lot of uncertainty. There were a lot of things we didn't know. And now we need to focus on on moving forward. And in order to do that, we need to stop trying to sort relitigate, of relitigate the past.
1: Final question. What are some of your favorite kids' books?
2: Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I love, for little kids, I love, um, I want uh, I Want My Hat Back. There's a series of John Clawson books um, and they're great because they're like just a little dark, um, but also like totally awesome. Um, and for um, for older kids, you know, for my my daughter, absolutely love the Land of Stories books, which are like, which I didn't have as a kid. So a lot of things we enjoy are things that I read as a kid. These are like a sort of set of fan- kind of fantasy novels which are like perfect for like a, this kind of second grade maybe third grade level, and they're just fantastic.
1: Well, that that answer is worth the price of admission alone because I, uh, I'm taking down notes furiously here. Uh, Emily Oyster, I want to thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues and encourage listeners to check out Emily's Substack parent data, which reflects the kind of dispassionate evidence-based analysis that you've brought to this conversation. I'm really grateful to be able to speak with you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.